Thank you, team, for that um, wonderful worship. Um, I think we just feel transported um, into God's presence. And um, in a sense, this is what the book of Job does. Um, it transports us. It gives us a different perspective. And so we're going to continue this morning our Under the Radar series, looking at the book of Job. Uh, part one was last week. For those of you who weren't here, we'll do a bit of a recap. Um, and if you remember, Job is the most ancient book in, in the written sense. And it's fitting that it tackles the most ancient question that we ask as humans, both believers and non-believers, which is how can a loving God um, allow suffering, particularly undeserved suffering? And what we saw is that the answer that God gives in the book of Job um, is not an essay, it's not a th uh, theological or philosophical answer, it's not a self-help psychology uh, book. Uh, it is a story that is written in dense Hebrew poetry. And so it takes a bit of digging and it takes a bit of time um, to get into the meaning and you really have to sit with this story. Am I holding it too close? Too, no. Uh, you really have to sit with this story and grapple with it. Uh, and as you do that, it's like God and the Holy Spirit shifts your perspective. And suddenly you start to see and understand more about God, God's view on suffering, the spiritual dimension of what is happening uh, behind suffering, and, and hopefully our hearts and minds are changed as we read this story. Um, so we'll, we'll recap quickly. <clears throat> what we saw in the first two chapters of Job is like the curtain pulled back on this spiritual dimension. And what we saw is that this, we got this view of God's throne room, God's control uh, center, if you will, with the entire universe in front of God, all 93 billion light years across, and the topic of conversation was Job. Uh, one man on one planet, in one solar system, in one galaxy among two trillion galaxies. So the idea we got there was in the vastness of the universe, God still sees Job. We are not forgotten. God is not indifferent. God is not absent. Uh, he is definitely there and he sees us. We got this image of a wager between Satan and God, which is an image for the spiritual battle that is going on from time immemorial. And, and this wager that Satan put to God was that Job um, would only relate to him because he either feared him or wanted the good things that God had to give to him. And that is a, a, a metaphor. Thank you, Jody. <clears throat> Am I croaky again? My wife had, had me doing vocal exercises this morning, so I wouldn't sound so croaky. Some of you may have heard a siren coming from a car going up and down. Um, anyway, it still didn't work this time. So the, the nature of this spiritual battle is, is Satan is saying to God, Job will only relate to you because he fears you or he wants something from you. And God is affirming that he has created us with free will and he uh, invites us to a relationship of love. So the spiritual battle is, is our, the nature of our relationship to God one that is transactional or is it truly relational and love-based? That's the spiritual battle that's going on. Satan argues the case for the prosecution. He's the one that initiates the testing. It's not God's idea, but God does constrain and limit it. So yes, he permits it, he permits Satan to attack Job, but he puts limits and constraints uh, around it. 
And what we saw that um, was that Job, like an old Jewish uncle, uh, gripes and complains and whines and whinges, but he continues to grapple with God. Uh, he will not let God go, and he demands an answer, and that pleases God's heart uh, in the end, because he persists, he endures the suffering, and he hangs on to God. And we saw that these um, 35 chapters in the middle of Job that seem frustrating and, and circular and don't seem to be making any progress are actually Job's dark night of the soul, where he's, he doesn't even realize what God is doing to him, but during this dark time when God seems absent and silent, God is actually shifting Job's heart. And we saw these deep flashes of insight that he has. He gets this sense of Jesus as intercessor, Jesus as mediator, he gets a sense of the resurrection of the body, the second coming, uh, the, book, the Lamb's book of life, the images from Revelation. All of that is revealed to Job, even though it's only partially, long before God starts to reveal himself to the people of Israel. So this is a remarkable thing. God, uh, Job, rather, because he suffers and endures and hangs on, is given this deep insight into things that God will only reveal to the people of Israel much later on. With me so far? Hopefully that's a reminder of where we were at last week. And then finally, <clears throat> in these last five chapters, we finally hear from God. Chapters 38 to 42. And um, this is no small thing. This is what in theological language is called the theophany which is God revealing himself directly and firsthand. It doesn't happen all that often, um, but when it does, nobody can have an experience like that and walk away unchanged. And so what we see here in these last five chapters are God finally speaking to Job, and Job is a changed man. He is not the same person at the end of the book that he was at the beginning. And I call these five transitions, five changes. And we we'll look at how does Job change because he has suffered and hung on and um, stayed faithful to God. And then we'll look at um, how we can look at that to find meaning and suffering uh, for ourselves. So let's get started. So what we see uh, at the start of chapter 38 and going forward is this long um, monologue from God basically where he takes Job through the natural world and the animal world. And at first reading, it sounds like uh, God is giving Job a bit of a talking to, like he's cutting him down to size uh, and scolding him almost. He says, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Who shut up the sea behind doors? Have you ever given orders to the morning? Have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Can you bind the blue, beautiful Pleiades? And there's the Pleiades constellation. And he continues like this with different examples from the natural world, the animal world, saying, you know, who are you? Did you create this? Do you know how to keep it going? Um, and it really sounds like God is scolding Job and he's giving him a talking to. And in a sense, he is. He's cutting him down to size. And so the first transition that we see <clears throat> is from entitlement to humility. So in the midst of his suffering, Job was basically raging at God, calling him incompetent and calling him to account. 
he said, you know, I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? So he's basically asking God to give an account of himself to Joel. He've, that's real entitlement. Uh, but by the end of the book, once God is speaking to him, he ends up saying, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I spoke once, but I have no answer. I will say no more. He, he has this attitude of humility. So he goes from entitlement to humility. And the root word of humility is the Latin uh, humilitas, which comes from humus, which is the ground. It means to have a grounded view of, him, of, of yourself. So what we see is that because he has seen God, he sees himself in relationship to God and he knows his own position. So um, in doing that, he mirrors the humility of Jesus and the humility that we are supposed to demonstrate um, knowing our position to God. <clears throat> in Philippians 2, it says, um, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. <clears throat> so because Job endures the suffering, hangs on to God, he finally hears from him, and when God speaks, we see this transition from entitlement to humility. And in doing that, he mirrors the humility of Christ and the humility that we are to have uh, as his followers uh, as well. So that's the first transition, but there's a lot more to this. So yes, God seems to have a bit of uh, an edge in his voice when he's talking to Job, but there's a lot more uh, to it. Because when you think about it, um, it is, this is a pretty unique thing. This is God taking Job through all of his creation, both natural and animal world. And we know now, because we, have, we live this side of the resurrection and we have um, Romans uh, to look at, Romans tells us, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So we know that the natural world speaks to us of God's character. And so when God is taking Job through this long tour of the created world, he is revealing his character and nature to Job in a way that is deeply intimate. This is like an artist giving you a personal tour of their studio. Um, and it goes on for chapter after chapter. This is a moment of deep intimacy that is not given to anyone else. So if you remember, even the patriarch uh, Moses, uh, a big shot like Moses, when he gets to see God, he has to hide in the cleft of the rock. God passes over him and he gets to glimpse God a little bit as God is moving away for a moment. So this kind of, of revelation of God firsthand to Job is pretty amazing. It is pretty unique. Um, and it is a moment of deep intimacy of God revealing himself in the created world. And you see that intimacy in a couple of other things. So when the Bible says that God talks to Satan, the Hebrew word for talk is amar, which means to declare, to assert, or to command. It's very authoritative. But the Hebrew word when God speaks or God talks to Job is anah, which means to respond graciously and to dialogue. There is a level of intimacy here in the way God speaks to Job that is not there in the way God speaks to Satan. And the other thing we see is that God reveals himself much more personally. So when we, when we look at um, the Hebrew word for God at the beginning of the book, 
It's Elohim, which is the generic word for Lord. But at the end chapters, when uh, we look at the Hebrew word for God, it's Yahweh. It's the personal name of God that he will reveal to the people of Israel later on. But he reveals it first to Job. So there's this sense of going from the generic and the general to the deeply personal and intimate uh, here. So because Job has suffered and he's hung on, he moves from knowledge about God to intimacy with God. You remember at the beginning of the book, we're told Job feared God and shunned evil. So in this sense, Job feared God, respected God, did all the right things, went through all the right practices so that he could be right with God. It's kind of this knowledge about God. But at the end, Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He has experienced God in a deeply personal way. He has been intimate with God and that knowledge changes him. And in doing that, he foreshadows again the intimacy that Jesus has with the Father and that we now have with the Father through Jesus. So, um, my ears had heard of you, but now my, my eyes have seen you. There is a deeply intimate uh, and first-hand experience of God that changes him because he has gone through suffering and hung on and wrestled. Does that make sense? You guys are still with me? Well, let's keep going. What else is happening in these last uh, five chapters? The next thing we see is that Job, uh, God calls Job to man up, not once but twice. So in chapter 38, God says to Job, brace yourself like a man, and he repeats that again two chapters later. Um, and um, the Hebrew for brace is azar, which is the, the military term that you would use to talk about girding up your loins, putting on the armor, uh, if you will. So God is telling Job, man up and take your place in the spiritual battle. Take up, become a soldier, grow up, become a soldier, and take your place in the spiritual battle. Um, and you remember the battle that we talked about is this nature of our relationship with God, Satan's wager with God, are we going to be transactional in our relationship or are we going to be relational? Um, and so the, the third transition we see is that Job um, goes from being a child to being a man and taking up his place in the spiritual battle, taking up his armor in the spiritual battle. As a child, we read in the first uh, chapter early in the morning, Job would sacrifice a burnt offering thinking perhaps my children have sinned. So the sense we get from Job there, it's a very rules-based observance. And rules are like children understand the world through rules, and then as they grow up, they understand the meaning behind the rules. So at the beginning, Job is still just following the rules, but at the end, um, he says in, in chapter 42, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And it's interesting because in the Greek, the, the he, uh, no, sorry, in the Hebrew, the word for plan is more like a military strategy. It's a plan that requires assessment, thinking about the enemy, deciding ahead of time how you're going to do things. It's a military strategy that is being referred to here. And the Hebrew word for thwarted is again a milita military term that means to be attacked or to be ambushed. And so what Job is saying to God is no strategy of yours can be ambushed. So what we see here is God speaks to Job and says to him, man up, take up your, he uses military language with Job, 
saying, take up your place in the spiritual battle. And Job responds to him using military language. It's like he understands what God is calling him to do, and he's ready to take up his place uh, in the fight. And again, when Job does that, he mirrors what Jesus will do in taking up the fight and in being victorious uh, in the fight. Again, in Philippians 2, it, just, it says that Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And again, this is military language. So it was common in ancient uh, times when you won a battle, the, the conquering general would parade the prisoners of war. They'd be stripped. They'd be walked down the main uh, street of the city as a sign of victory. Um, and this is the language that uh, Paul is using here about what Jesus has done. It is a military victory. It, it is spiritual battle where um, you have taken a part. Is that making sense? Yes. <clears throat> Let's keep going. The next thing we see is that God directs um, Job's friends uh, towards him. So we see at the end of these chapters that God is not happy with Eliphaz and his uh, two other friends. He says, I'm angry with you and your two friends. Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. So what we see there is that God actually sets up Job as intercessor and priest. The role of a priest is to mediate, to present the people to God and present God to the people. And God gives this role to Job to do with his friends. And so what we see here is a transition from um, Job moving from a believer to a priest. So again, at the beginning of the, the book, he is offering the sacrifices. Presumably, he's going to a priest to do these sacrifices. But again, because he has suffered, because he has endured, because he has finally heard from God, he is a changed man. And God has given him the authority to be the priest himself, to be the intercessor on behalf of his friends. Um, at the end, we read, the friends did what uh, the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And this is the interesting bit. Uh, all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him at his house, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. And it's a bit of a puzzling sentence at first, but it, I think what's actually happening is that they're giving him a tithe. And this is a bit reminiscent of Abraham gave, giving a tithe to uh, Melchizedek. So just to remind you what that story about is about in, in Genesis, in the Old Testament, uh, Abraham uh, is fighting uh, against the enemies of Israel. God gives him a victory in battle. He comes back with all of this loot, and he meets this mysterious figure of Melchizedek, who is a priest. Now remember, this is long before the 12 tribes and the about Levites and Aaron. Um, this is a priest long before God reveals what a priest is supposed to do. He's also king of Salem, and Abraham seems to recognize some authority in this person and gives him a tithe from all the loot that he's brought back from his battle. So in the same way that Abraham recognizes authority in Melchizedek, it seems like what is happening here is that when Job is restored, his family and friends and neighbors recognize an authority that he didn't have before, and they offer him a tithe in the same way that Abraham did with uh, Melchizedek. So again, we see the sense 
that um, Job is a changed man after his interaction with God. And in that sense, he also mirrors the priestly function of Jesus. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest, and then we inherit that role in terms of presenting people to God, interceding on their behalf, and reflecting God to people who don't know him. Am I losing you, or are you still with me? All right. <laughs> Good. And then it's interesting, the thing we do not see in these five chapters is another peek into God's throne room. So wouldn't it be poetic if the book started with these first two chapters where we were in the heavenly courtroom uh, with Satan and God, and wouldn't it be nice to see the parallel scene at the end where Satan gets his just desserts? But in fact, we don't see anything. Um, and in a sense, it is fitting because Satan has been silenced. So you remember, we said the battle that is going on uh, is that Satan said to God, Job won't last, he'll curse you, he only wants you because of the good things you give him, and if you make him suffer enough, he'll turn against you. And what we see now is that because Job remains faithful, doesn't curse God, goes through the suffering, and keeps hanging on, he is victorious uh, in battle. He has proven Satan to be the liar that he is. And that scores a victory in the spiritual realm. That, that means God has won the wager. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure if um, Job realizes the victory that it is. And I've always wondered, Job is never given this view into the spiritual realm that we are in the first two chapters. He, he's blind to that. He's just going through the suffering. And at the end, he's probably just relieved that it's over and done with. But what we see is that in the spiritual realm, it is a great victory. And I've always wondered, why couldn't God have told Job, listen, let me take you aside. This is what's going to happen. It's going to get tough for a little while, but hang in there, and I will reward you uh, at the end. And of course, if God had done that, he would have played directly into Satan's hands. And Satan would have been able to say, Job has only endured the suffering and stuck with you because of the reward that you were going to give him uh, at the end. So the only way Job can be victorious is to go through the suffering without knowing this whole spiritual dimension that we are privy to. And so even though he scored a victory in the spiritual realm, he probably doesn't feel like it's a victory and he, does, he may not see it, but that's the reality um, in the spiritual realm. And so that's the last transition that we see uh, in Job. He moves from being a victim to a victor. Um, as he's going through um, the suffering, uh, he feels like God's pincushion. He says, uh, God is shooting me down with uh, arrows. But by the end, uh, we see after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. So he wins a spiritual victory. He also happens to win a victory uh, in, in this world. Uh, and I, I, I have to warn you, that doesn't always happen. So we don't always see victory. There's plenty of Christians in the history of the church who have suffered and died in terrible ways and never seen the victory this, this side of, of heaven. Um, so we can't pin uh, our hopes on that. But what we can uh, know is that um, there is a victory in the spiritual realm when we suffer and hang on and um, stick with God. Is, does that make sense?
And in that sense, we are, he mirrors, and hopefully we mirror, the victory that Jesus has uh, in that spiritual realm. As it says in 1 Corinthians, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So um, there is a sense in which when we are able, like Job, to endure suffering and stick with God, Satan is silenced, and it is a victory in the spiritual realm. So that's all good for Job. What, um, how do we make sense of this? Yes, he's an example for us on how, in how we can handle suffering and, and the growth that can happen um, when we handle suffering um, with God. Um, but what can we take away? So um, Jesus was nothing if not practical. Um, he didn't always... He never promised us an easy life or a comfortable life or a prosperous life, but he did promise us trouble. Um, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. It's a pretty strong promise, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the, the, the question is really, do you want to go through suffering um, with God or without God? Um, because suffering is going to happen either way. And what we see in Job is somebody the way I've framed it is that we see Job's journey as why to how via who. So what we see in Job is somebody who starts out by asking, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve it. But by the end, he's moved to, to how. How do you want to use this? How shall I handle this to your glory? And, and the reason behind that transition from why is the suffering happened to how do you want me to use it is who. He has had a first-hand experience of who is in control. So even though he doesn't know the future, he now has intimate knowledge of who holds the future in his hands, to coin the, uh, the song. Um, and that is what gives him the ability to, to go through the suffering. He's gone from asking why is the suffering happening to how do you want me to use it because he has developed this trust in God. And I think a beautiful way to, to look at it comes from this fellow. Um, George MacDonald, who's not very well known, but he was a Scottish poet and minister who was actually uh, a mentor and a huge influence on C.S. Lewis, on G.K. Chesterton, on Oswald Chambers, um, and uh, George MacDonald wrote, Jesus suffered not so that we would never suffer, but so that when we suffer, we would be like him. And I think this is an amazing way to kind of encapsulate Job, because if you think about it, the first half of that is a very different perspective from the second half. So, you know, Jesus suffered so that we would never suffer. If you think about it, the, the perspective and the attitude of the heart behind that is saying, I've got a story and Jesus came into my story to make it easy and comfortable and prosperous. If you look at the second half, when we suffer, we would be like him. The perspective is we are part of God's story and our suffering gets kind of bound up and taken up into his story and we find meaning and purpose when that happens. So it's not that God came to change our story, but God came so that we can be part of his story. Do you see how that, that subtle difference in attitude makes all the difference in how we go through um, suffering? Have I lost you with that bit? No? I'm hoping you're still there. This is something that the apostles uh, understood. Um, 
we look at Paul in, in what he writes to the Philippians. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. To me, that's speaking about handling our sufferings in the same way that Job does, in the same way that Jesus does. It is giving our sufferings and recognizing that that can be part of God's story and what God is doing in terms of establishing the kingdom uh, in the world. And that gives it a bigger meaning and purpose than if we just say God's there to make our story comfortable. We see it in Peter when he writes uh, in his first letter, now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Again, this idea that when the saints are going through suffering, it is part taken up into God's story, and somehow it contributes to this victory in the spiritual realm that we will ultimately see one day, that there will, it will bring glory and honor and praise to God when we handle suffering well. So we can witness uh, in our faith, not only in how we live and how we die, but how we suffer uh, as well. All of that is a witness. And when that happens, when our suffering is taken up into God's story, we know that that story has a glorious ending. Um, Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. And we've got the images in Revelation, uh, the last chapters of Revelation, when the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them, they will be his people, God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We, you know, suffering was never God's original plan and we look forward to a time when it will no longer uh, be part of what we have to endure. But in the meantime, the suffering that we, can't, that we have to endure um, can contribute and, and redound to the praise and glory and honor of God. And it gets taken up into the story that ultimately, the ending, is that suffering will be brought to an end. Um, yes? Now, I thought some of you might say, well, well you've gone off the rails here. What's the, my story, his story, his story, our story, it's all airy-fairy um, stuff. Um, but I just want to give you one bit, perhaps, of evidence that this is not airy-fairy and this is the difference between life and death. So, this, some of you may recognize this person, Viktor Frankl, who was an Austrian-Jewish um, psychologist and neurologist um, who lived just before the, the World Wars, World War II. He got taken up with uh, the, the war. The Nazis ended up putting him and his family in concentration camps. So his wife died, his mother died, his father died, his brother died. He went through four concentration camps in the space of three years and he's the only one who survived. And while he was going through these concentration camps, he still had his clinical observation. He, he looked at the people around him with his clinical eye, and he noticed that some people who were physically quite big and robust just seemed to shrivel up under the suffering and, and die very quickly. And others who were quite small and looked like they could you know, fall over if you breathed on them the wrong way, actually were able to, to endure 
and not only continue to live, but to give life to others. And so he started to think, what makes the difference? Why is it that some people die very quickly and some seem to have this ability to persist? And so he wrote up his observations in this little book called Man's Search for Meaning. If, if uh, you haven't read it, I can highly recommend it to you. And what he, what he noticed was that the people who can give meaning and purpose to their suffering, who can see their suffering in some greater context, were the ones who had the ability to persist and hang on and endure. And so it was literally the difference between life and death. And this is what he writes in his book. Suffering in and of itself is meaningless. We give our, meaning, our suffering meaning by the way in which we respond to it. Suffering is an ineradicable part of life. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. And notice the biblical language here that he uses. The way in which a man accepts his fate and takes up his cross gives him ample opportunity to add a deeper meaning to his life. This decides whether he is worthy of his suffering. Um, and I love that last line, whether he is worthy of his suffering. It is just, a, again, a reminder that our witness to God is not just how we live, how we spend our money, even how we die, but how we go through suffering is also part of the way in which we witness to those, and, to those around us and reflect God's uh, character. So, um, we've covered a lot of ground. I hope I haven't lost you. Um, we saw that suffering will happen in this life regardless of whether we believe in God or not. So I think it's better to go through suffering with God than without God. Um, just to quote Dawkins again, this is the fellow uh, who's the kind of poster child for the new atheist in, the, in his book, The God Delusion. He says, suffering shows that there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, I think if you live by that, it is like killing you spiritually before you are killed physically. I think that is a recipe for having your spirit shrivel up and you die long before you die physically. What we see in Job is an example of a person who um, endures suffering and because of it meets God and changes in ways that are pretty amazing. What we see when we join our suffering to God's story there is the possibility for us to grow from entitlement to humility, from knowledge about God to intimacy with God, from child to man, ready to take up the spiritual battle, from believer to priest, and from victim to victor. And recognizing that victory doesn't always mean in this earth, uh, but it is always spiritual uh, victory. And so, um, maybe as the music team comes up, I just want to close in the same way I opened. For those of you who were here um, last time, I opened this series with um, the anecdote about my dad. So some of you will remember, um, my dad was a real man of faith. Um, he loved being in prayer groups, leading Bible study groups. Uh, he was part of the deliverance ministry. He saw amazing things happen. And then slowly, as the years went on, he uh, went blind from glaucoma. He developed Parkinson's. He developed dementia, ended up in a nursing home. Um, and um, some of you will remember, I, uh, that's when I said to God, I'm angry with you, and how does this make any sense? How can you let somebody who served you so faithfully end up like this? And so, 
one of the last visits I had with my dad um, in a moment of semi-lucidity, I actually had the courage to ask him, Dad, do you ever get angry with God that you've ended up like this? And he said to me, God has been so good to me, how could I ever be angry with him? Um, and he said to me, he still, he sent me a nurse. He had a number of nurses actually who were Christians and they would sing praise hymns with him as they were caring for him and giving him his bath. And he said, even the nurses who um, aren't Christian, he's given me an opportunity to witness uh, to them. Um, so it, it's at that point that I <clears throat> realized to look at him with human eyes, um, he was a shell of a man, um, really an invalid who was bedbound and not much to look at. But to look at him with spiritual eyes would be to, to see a giant in the faith um, who had won a spiritual victory and silenced Satan. So hopefully that's an example. That's the example that Job uh, can be to us of how we can handle uh, suffering um, and reflect uh, glory back to God and praise to God in the way that we handle that.